0: Let's head back to Ukraine. Now, you know, Kyiv is a pretty big place. Think of it kind of like Toronto, maybe not quite as big, but it's big. And it's been another day of destruction there. Early morning barrages, Russian barrages, hitting residential buildings in Kyiv, killing one person, wounding 19. Overall, 60 civilians and four kids officially have been killed in that city in the last three weeks, 889 wounded, including 241 kids. And I try to picture sometimes what would, if that was happening in a place like Toronto. Um, the city's mayor, former heavyweight boxing champion Vitali Klitschko, says Russia is targeting the innocent. It's the war against civilians. I don't see military people here. It's no military base. It's just apartments, apartments from civilians. Vitali Klitschko, Kiev's mayor. The indiscriminate targeting of civilians continues to fuel a refugee crisis as well as people flee the violence. More than 6.5 million people on the move inside the country. 3.2 million have left the country, approaching a level of displacement seen from Syria in just three weeks. Well, joining me now from Ottawa is retired Lieutenant General Andrew Leslie, former Deputy Commander of the NATO Land Forces in Afghanistan and Liberal Member of Parliament for Orleans. Thank you so much for being here tonight.
1: Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you.
0: I wanted to start in Ukraine a bit, and we've talked a lot about um, civilian casualties over the last uh, week or so. Uh, specifically, the U- UK's Department of Defense today released another report talking about what would only be called indiscriminate shelling of civilian areas. How disturbing has this been to witness from your perspective, and what could possibly be done to try to stop it?
1: Well, it's horrifying. Uh, tragically, I've seen it before, uh, both in uh, the former Yugoslavia and in Afghanistan, I I commend the remarkable courage of the Ukrainian defenders and their leadership, of which all those who are against that psychopath Putin are are revering right now. It's probably going to get worse, unfortunately, in the short term, mainly because a variety of political leaders didn't respond when Russia took four months to build up to 200,000, which probably gave Putin the idea that he could go ahead and succeed. NATO's not ready to get into war with Russia and to intervene piecemeal before a certain critical mass of aircraft, anti-aircraft missiles and soldiers are available to defend um or to um do what has to be done it's going to take some more time by the way i don't want to leave anybody with the impression that there's guilt on nato or guilt on any specific individual apart from putin and his uh fellow thugs who originated this slaughter
0: absolutely i mean um the, invasion, the illegal invasion, of course, rests on the shoulders. The guilt of that rests on the shoulders of one regime and one regime alone. Today is the anniversary of the annexation of Crimea in 2014. Was there an opportunity, from your perspective, were there opportunities missed to try to make sure that Vladimir Putin didn't feel that he could do this?
1: Well, I, I'm, I'm delighted to hear you articulate that Putin must have thought he could win, otherwise he wouldn't have done it. And there were definitely lost victories in there for us, us being NATO, us being the people who abhor what's going on inside the Ukraine, vis a vis the innocent being slaughtered, or anybody being killed. Right now, though, we are unfortunately that old army saying, we are where we are. Opportunities were missed. A whole bunch of Western nations cashed in a peace dividend, didn't resource their armed forces appropriately. There's the quick reaction forces aren't that quick, and they're not reacting that swiftly. So, we're kind of stuck for a while. We're stuck until NATO can build up a critical mass of combat power. At the same time, we're dealing with Putin, psychopath, supported by his generals and his oligarchs. And, and by the way, it's not all on Putin, right? Because he's got 200,000 troops there. And obviously some of them don't want to be there, but there's Russians who are driving those tanks and dropping those bombs who are doing the actual killing on the pointy end and they share equal blame. But we've got to figure out how you deal with someone who's made some really bad decisions. So Putin thought, for example, that his army was much better than it actually is, that his equipment was much more modern than it actually is, that you know the weather would cooperate and bend to as well, which it never does in Russia. So that was a really stupid thing to do, was to invade during mud season. He underestimated the leadership of the Ukraine, which has shown itself to be exemplary. He underestimated the passion and spirit of the Ukraine defenders, both soldiers. And people who were civilians three short weeks ago, which, I mean, their, their fight is remarkable. He also underestimated the will of NATO. So the thing that he fears the most, that NATO would coalesce and regain its mojo, uh, is happening. And he also fears the fact that NATO might decide to spend more, an adequate amount on defense instead of cashing a peace dividend. And that's going to happen, or it better happen. I mean,
0: we have a NATO leaders meeting, uh, a NATO countries leaders meeting coming up next week. Uh, Do you expect to see anything substantial in the short term from NATO?
1: They'll probably discuss the no-fly zone, which uh, it's a really tough one to solve. Putin's made it clear that if he sees NATO aircraft over the Ukraine or NATO aircraft dropping bombs on his air defense systems, which will be firing up at the NATO aircraft trying to impose the no-fly zone. So that's if we go with the no-fly zone, we'll actually end up bombing and attacking Russian ground troops. Then he will consider that an act of war. And because he's now got a reputation for making really stupid and silly decisions, which you and I as relatively normal people can understand, we can't assume that his next series of decisions will be rational either. And unlike you and I, he has access to weapons systems which are, well, they're, they're the door to Armageddon, chemical and nuclear weapons. In the short term, I hope that uh, NATO will... Um, move more swiftly in deploying its troops to the Baltic states and along that eastern corridor, that eastern flank of NATO. I hope they deploy more air assets to be able to do what has to be done inevitably because one of three things is going to happen. Either Russia is going to grind its way up to the Polish-Hungarian-Baltic state border, in which case we'll have to face off against the Russian bear and stop them going any further, or Putin will be replaced by some eager Young subordinate well, we're not sure what that subordinate might do. Will he continue or she? Will he withdraw? We don't know. Uh, or they'll flee in disarray. Uh, and most of the Russian state will start to collapse from internal inequities and pressures. But that'll still cause tremendous anxiety and tension. Because once again, it's a state with enormous numbers of nuclear and chemical weapons. And they'll have to be watched. So we've got to get ready. We've got to get troops there. And that isn't happening quickly enough.
0: I was going to say from someone who knows his military planning, none of those options sound particularly attractive.
1: No, they don't. There's no easy way out of this. Putin was convinced he could win. He managed to obviously convince his inner circle, whoever that is, that they could win collectively. It's pretty clear that it's not going as planned. And um, desperate men, and it's mainly all men, desperate men do desperate things.
0: I'm speaking with retired Lieutenant General Andrew Leslie, former Deputy Commander of the NATO leaders, NATO land forces, rather in Afghanistan, and Liberal Member of Parliament for Orleans. After this, we'll come back. We'll change. We'll talk about not a war of the present, but a war of the past, and the Canadian soldiers who fought to liberate Europe uh, seventy more than seventy years ago now, and a condo development, a controversial condo development uh, that could be going up. At Juneau Beach, site of where hundreds of Canadians died in the Normandy landings in 1944. That's next. I'm back with retired Lieutenant General Andrew Leslie, former Deputy Commander of the NATO Land Forces in Afghanistan and Liberal Member of Parliament for Orleans. Um, This is to change gears uh, completely, but also a a subject that I think is, is definitely worth talking about. A condo development to be built at Juneau Beach. It sounds like an awful idea if you're a Canadian, and I'm wondering... What to make of it?
1: It is an awful idea. Here we are, you know, talking about a Russian bear, rabid Russian bear, rampaging across the Ukraine, slaughtering innocents. And there's no doubt that in, U- in the Ukraine, their memory will be forever revered and honored, and the sites of the pitch battles will be places of, of quiet reflection. And yet, we had fourteen thousand Canadians either landing from the landing craft or parachuting into France. My father was one of them. (laughs) They seized Juneau Beach, which was our beach, our entrance into the contribution for the eventual victory. We had over a 1,000 casualties, pretty close to 400 killed. A bunch of people got together and created a monument and a lot of self-funding. The Fed's in a bit of it, but it's mainly private funding and it's a magnificent site. And the French government is on side with it. So are the locals. And then we've got this wealthy condo developer who wants to take over essentially the site of the beach and use the access road to this memorial site for his entranceway and driveway and all that. It's just, it's unbelievable that it's got to this point. It is. I was, here we are. Yeah.
0: I was surprised to read that, of course, the, uh, you know, the Juno Beach Center. I, I, I've been to Normandy. Uh, the Juno, it, it, it is a, anyone who's never been there, I recommend you do it as a Canadian at least once in your life if you can. No, I'm um, glad to hear you went. Yeah. It, it is a, yeah. It's a sobering spot. Um, but, I guess the the Juno Beach Center knows that it's in France, so it doesn't want to play too hard on the politics. But really the problem here is they want to use the access road that is theirs to build this. And that could see the center closed for years, which would be a travesty.
1: Yeah. I mean, quite frankly, um, we're just talking about Russia. You know, the poor Juno Center has spent $400,000 on legal fees. So this is a classic case of, it's almost like developers acting like a Russian oligarch trying to use every tool at their disposal to get their way to reap great profits while disrupting a historical site. So, you know, the Juno Beach Center is in trouble. It's in, it's in danger, actually, of being subsumed into this larger hole of a yet more multi-million dollar condos overlooking a beach, which Canadians bled on.
0: You know your diplomacy. <laughs> What can we do? What can Canada do? What should we do to try to make this stop? I realize it's a probably like everything here in this country. it's It probably boils down to a municipal zoning issue uh, to some extent. But what can we do to put pressure on, on, on the French to make this go away?
1: Well, it's not only pressure on the French. Much akin to the earlier topic, it's also our federal officials. So... Uh, There's, you know, information on how to send letters to the Minister of Veterans Affairs, who, quite frankly, should be all over this. and should be sticking up for Canadians, especially those who paid the ultimate price. And I don't see a lot of that happening. The Minister of Foreign Affairs as well. How about the French ambassador to Canada? And how about to any French contacts you may have? What we need is we need the government to step up to the plate and honour the memory of those who served in literally a war that changed the world and show some resolve. Don't hide behind the screen of bureaucracy and, you know, interdepartmental, well, who's going to take care of this and who's going to solve it? And yes, I do know a little bit about diplomacy, but I think everyone who's listening will realize I'm not a very good diplomat.
0: You're an effective diplomat, I always
1: thought. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: whether it works or not is a different, is, is uh, yeah. but effective. You know, I, I think it, you, what you want here, I think, is you want to prod people into doing something. You'd think with the amount of, I mean, every single day I receive, you know, notices of who's been talking to who on the phone about what all of it Ukraine. But you'd think this would be a, an opportune time now that we have the ear, for instance, of the French, this would be an opportune time to bring this up and put this to bed fast.
1: Yeah. And if it's a question of a tiny bit of money, I mean, this government just finished spending hundreds of billions of dollars. I'm not arguing about that. I kind of wish they'd spent a tiny bit more on defense, actually an awful lot more on defense more quickly, but we'll get back to that. And this is not not necessarily an ask for money. It's an ask for protection from another sovereign government, French, to make sure that this developer doesn't get his way and reap a profit on the, essentially, while standing on the shoulders of our fallen. That
0: is, it does bring up an interesting point. Why do you think, uh, over the years, our governments have been so eager to embrace the successes of what's been built to commemorate Juno Beach, but so ineffective to some extent at supporting it?
1: You know, I think it's time for a little bit of an attitude change on how we govern and also the idea of, of ministerial responsibility. You know, what's happening in Ukraine is the responsibility of Putin and those who support him and those who are actually engaged in the killing of the innocent Ukrainians. What happens in this instance, our monument dedicated to veterans, Canadian veterans are dead, is the responsibility of the Prime Minister of Canada and the Ministers of Veterans Affairs. Get on with it. Stop with the pretty speeches. Stop with the gosh golly, just get it done. And that is something which I find increasingly absent from the realm of federal politics, especially those who are governing. If you got a problem, try to solve it. This is not a big problem. It is for those who no longer can defend themselves, i.e. those who passed on after fighting so violently on the beaches or are dead and wounded and they can't help themselves. So that's what the Department of Veterans Affairs is there for. So the Minister of Veterans Affairs should get on a plane, get over there, and solve this problem. No rush. But, you know, if he leaves sometime tomorrow, that would be soon enough.
0: <laughs> there is a timeline here, I gather. It is, it is
1: going to happen relatively soon if it isn't stopped. Yeah, very soon. It's been going on for about two years now. And as mentioned, the poor center, which relies on visitors such as yourself and myself over the years. You know, they spent four hundred thousand dollars in legal fees. So they're in trouble financially, and they rely on donations to carry on the good fight, but just well to sustain the education center and the displays, which you've seen and can comment on later. But this is the time for government to stop waffling, stop dithering, and just sort it out.
0: Andrew Leslie, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it.
1: My pleasure.